So let's center ourselves and find ourselves in John 17, this is where Jesus is speaking to his disciples shortly before he's about to be executed. So it, it feels like these are things that are being said with a lot of weight uh, and a lot of urgency as well. And he says this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know you that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this reminder. And we're thankful for your words that show us how we are supposed to be. Lord, we pray that we as a church come to know you more fully this morning. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the final week of our Who is Wellspring conversation. Um, We've learned through a lot of discussion and just through kind of paying attention, I guess, uh, that there are a lot of people that are new to the church, which is wonderful and exciting, and we're really glad that you're here. But it also means that we want to hear from you. We want to hear how things are going. We want to see how you think this whole thing is going. Uh, we want to know what this church means to you. And we've been looking at this Who is Wellspring document which is something that the leaders of the church put together, and we're asking for your feedback on it. We've been looking at our postures and priorities as a church through what's called the one, two, threes of theology. I'm going to catch you up on this if you may have missed it, and it's okay if you have. I'll talk about that in a moment, but let me read this Who is Wellspring document one more time. Who is Wellspring? This is, of course, a difficult question to answer. This is a church of a 126-year history, and we can tell you that we're not the same church that we were when we started. And we're not even the same church that we were a year ago. Naturally, it's difficult to put into words our identity into one page. And we know that each person's response will be slightly different. We hope that these answers give a comprehensive, albeit shorthanded, answer. So the first question is, who is Jesus according to Wellspring? Wellspring is, first and foremost, a church that is dedicated to knowing, loving, and serving Jesus. And because that probably doesn't differentiate us from a lot of churches out there, we thought we'd explain that a little bit more. We hold to the same view about who Jesus Christ is as the church has done for 2,000 years. We believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and buried. On the third day, he rose again. These words are taken from the Apostles' Creed, which is something that we ascribe to and we have talked about a bit. We believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection restored the fractured relationship between God and humankind, and that both parties delight in this restoration. If we have a criticism of the creed, and many do, it's that it should speak more to the life of Jesus. We believe that Jesus lived in a perfect relationship with God and served as a perfect example to us. Jesus was one who loved those whom society felt it was difficult to love. Jesus was a voice for those who may have been silenced. Jesus was one who welcomed and created space for those whom often religious leaders of the day would not have welcomed or created space for. We believe that Jesus did all of these things willingly and delightfully. Jesus' example of sharing meals together, even with people whose life experiences are different to our own, has grounded us as a community that does life together, even when it gets messy. Jesus' example of self-giving love all the way through his life with special attention paid to those who have so often found themselves excluded is a cornerstone on which we wish to build this church. So who are we? It's with those pieces in mind that Wellspring has put a particular emphasis on radical welcome to everyone. We recognize that this is an area in which many churches, ourselves included, have failed. We believe that this exclusion grieves the heart of God, and it's a posture that we, as a church, repent of. For a long time, we have shared that we receive all whom Christ receives, and it's a beautiful statement, but we think it needs some clarification. We want you to know that you're welcome to come as you are, Your age, ability, wealth, sexuality, gender identity, race are all part of your story and therefore things that we honor. We believe that every single one of you is created in the image and likeness of God and that is something to be celebrated. Each one of our voices gives us a better understanding of God and God's love for us. We know that our church is richer and more reflective of the Trinitarian love of God because of our diversity, not in spite of our diversity. We celebrate the inclusion and participation of everyone who walks through the doors at Wellspring. If you are someone who is carrying hurt from a previous church experience, please know that you're not alone. I mean, part of the healing process for people who have been wounded is one of the great privileges Wellspring carries. We understand that trusting churches can be hard, but it is our hope that Wellspring be a place of generosity, curiosity, and compassion whilst we get to know each other better. We're glad that you're here. Thank you for grabbing that document, Caitlin. So lots of that document is about who we think Jesus is, and lots of it is about who we are trying to be, what is important to us as people, as a community. Uh, But this is a living document. This is a living congregation, and we follow a living, breathing God and we want to be sensitive to what that living, breathing God's spirit is telling us here and now. It means that things don't get set in stone because God is alive and dynamic and beautiful. And the one, two, threes of theology are this framework we've been used to help shape this dynamic as a church. And I really hate that I put framework and dynamic in a sentence. It sounds like a boardroom. It's not what I'm good at. But in the one, two, threes of theology, which is this helpful document, the one, the most important thing of all, is the supremacy of Jesus. We absolutely believe that Jesus is king of everything. Uh, We find that in the Apostles' Creed, which I just mentioned. 
the church has agreed on that document for 1,600 years, which is pretty good for a church that disagrees on pretty much everything. We believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that means that ultimately loving our neighbor and our God are the most important things that we can do because Jesus tells us that they are the most important thing that we can do. And the three in those one, two, threes of theology are what are known as peripheral issues. And these are all the things that Christians disagree on. And in case you weren't aware, there are quite a lot of things that Christians disagree on. And we haven't done particularly well on this. This is a joke that I found this week. I don't like telling jokes, but I thought this joke was appropriate. Uh, it's set, there's uh, two people at the Grand Canyon, which is uh, where Kevin and Marsha were recently. And uh, Marsha managed to not push Kevin over the edge, which, God of miracles, people. <laughs> the story goes that there's two people at the edge of the, I, I was at the edge of the, we'll go first person. I was at the edge of a Grand Canyon, and I was speaking to someone, I said, do you know that God loves you? And he said, I do, I do know that God loves me. I said, that's great, are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, I'm a Christian. I said, that's great, me too. And I said, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? And he said, I'm Protestant. And he, I said, oh, that's great. Me too. What denomination? And he said, oh, I'm Baptist. I said, oh, that's great. Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he said, Northern Baptist. And I said, great. Me too. <laughs> Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. This is where it becomes a bit of a joke. Uh, <laughs> I said, that's great. Me too. Northern Conservative Baptist General Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. I said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Legion of Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die heretic and pushed him over the edge. And we get to make fun of this, but it's also kind of true that these issues that we can kind of split hairs over can often become life and death situations. We talked about baptism, how 500 years ago this was an issue that people lived and died over. So we want to be sensitive to this and recognize that the church has been disagreeing and disagreeing badly for a long time now. Christians are a divided people, and I believe that division grieves the heart of God, much like we heard in that text from Jesus earlier. His desire is that we be one as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. Last week, we looked uh, a bit of the twos of that one, two, threes of theology, and that's the unity of the Christ, the unity of the Christ, unity of the church. We think that unity is less important than Jesus being king. Uh, we, we draw the line there. Uh, you can be an excellent, wonderful person, but ultimately, you're not a Christian if you don't think Jesus is king. We think that's sad, but it is what it is. <laughs> but we think what is more important than all the things that we disagree on and all the things we push people into the Grand Canyon for is unity. The unity of the church, we think, is the second most important thing. I say we, I do, and this is something I'm trying to impress upon y'all. But what that means is it means we have to disagree well. For unity to be more important than the things we disagree on, we have to disagree well. 
unity means loving our neighbor, even when we disagree with them, and even when it means that we have to sacrifice on their behalf. Last week, we looked at Jesus' example of becoming nothing, of giving up his rights and remembering that to honor and to follow him, we have to do the same. Our rights aren't often, sometimes aren't our own. But I realized that unity was complex and I needed a second week to talk about it. So this week, I'm going to talk about why it's hard and why it's worth it. Why it's hard, why it's worth it. In the back of your head throughout all of this, I, I want you all thinking, like, what is it I'm willing to give up? What is it I'm willing to lay down? What are those peripheral convictions can I give up? to remember that Christ is king and his desire is for us to be one. Because it's hard. There's a couple of reasons that have kind of stuck out to me this week. I think one of the reasons that unity is so hard is it's just not something that churches have often made a priority. It's just not something we kind of worry about that much, weirdly. Like, during my time at seminary, I don't think there were many courses, sorry, Marion, um, <laughs> that, like, that emphasize this. We learn about theology and we learn about, uh, you know, churches and boardrooms and stuff like that. But in terms of that unity piece, it doesn't seem to be as much of a priority. When people ask about church, they ask about how the sermons are, or the worship are, how many people are going, what the children's work is like. But as far as that unity piece, that deeper question, it doesn't often come up as much as we think it is. It's kind of like a bonus rather than a foundation. And I'm just going to repeat what I said from Jesus earlier, because I think this is really key. This is really important. This is where we need to find ourselves. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be also in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. The world will know we are his because of how we love one another. The world will know that you have sent me because of their complete unity. Our oneness stands as a testimony to the power of Jesus. And there are 40,000 denominations in the world. Our unity, not, not our uniformity, our unity is a sign that Christ is king. And this idea of kind of uh, oneness or unity being a sign of kingship, that, that's very um, of the time as well. So the world in which Jesus is speaking is the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was this vast, powerful thing uh, that was not without its upsides. It's you know very problematic in a whole bunch of ways, but there were some good pieces about it. I can't deny that. 
a sign that the emperor's claim to be king was valid was the fact that he had brought all of these nations together. Now, not often through great means, but he'd done it. And the Roman Empire consisted of different races and different religions and different classes, and they're all reconciled under the Peace of Rome, or the Pax Romana. And the Pax Romana brought it with some good things, but it also brought the promise that if you disagree with us, we will crucify you. We're going to give you food. We're going to give you these things, but we will crucify you if you disagree with us. It is unity at a very grim cost. It is peace with a threat. It is community with a large asterisk. The peace of Christ is something different. It comes without a threat. Like the cross of Rome was no threat to Christians because the empire had already thrown all it could at Jesus and he refused to stay dead. See my Easter sermon for how excited I am about this. Despite everything, all the evil, all the poison that was thrown at Jesus, Colossians tells us that God is pleased to reconcile all things to himself because of what was done to Jesus. Our unity shows that we know who our king is. Not unity with a threat or an asterisk. Just with a cost that Jesus has already paid. Like, so it's hard. It's hard. I get that it's hard, but I think it's worth it because it shows the world who Jesus is. Another reason I think it's hard is that we have often been told that our convictions matter more than people. We've been told that if we have a genuine conviction, we should stick to it and argue those that disagree with us. There's always a focus on what we disagree on rather than the way that we disagree with one another. But our desire is for unity, not uniformity. And that means we need to try more hard, not less hard, sadly. And it can be really risky. And like, I'm always terrified when you all talk to one another because none of you agree on anything. Um, and none of you agree with me on anything either. So <laughs> like, I'd just be one of those guys that tells them to agree with me or get out. But, I, but that's not what I think this is. That's not how I think Jesus does things. So. And we disagree on things that matter. We disagree on things that are important. We disagree on some real, like, core identity pieces. But holding that truth that we are reconciled to God through Christ should inform us at least how we talk about our differences. If we talk about those threes, if we talk about those peripheral convictions in ways that are not soaked in love and grace, then we aren't practicing the two of unity. And we aren't remembering the one that is the love, that self-giving love of Jesus. We, we need to be asking ourselves all the time, how can we be loving? Like Being loving is how you build community. It's, it's that simple. So like we get to trust the Bible about what it says love is. So it's not enough to just say I'm speaking the truth in love. Man, that has been weaponized. It's not an excuse to say something hurtful. It's not enough to say, hey, I'm saying this as a brother, and then you speak to someone in a way that you'd never speak to a sibling, or at least you definitely shouldn't. 
It's not enough to say I'm doing this because I love you, because the other person is a better judge of whether you're being loving or not, actually. If you're acting in a way that isn't patient or kind, which, remember, is what the Bible tells us what love is, then, then, then you're not doing what is loving. There's a saying on the internet right now, there's no hate quite like Christian love. And that should sting. That should break our hearts because I know it breaks the heart of Jesus. The idea that Christian love has been weaponized, has been <laughs> fashioned to a point, a sharp stick that we can stab other people with. No. It's not how it's supposed to be. We trust the Bible about what the Bible says about what love is. Practicing unity means that your words will be gracious. They will be peaceful. They will be gentle. They will be loving. Is it easy? No. Is it effective? No. Is it the way of Jesus? All right, yeah, there we go. It's not right. Thank you. Let's say that again. Is it the way of Jesus? Hooray. Okay, cool. I love me some audience participation. It's hard. It's hard. It's so hard. But I think it's worth it. We practice unity because we need to show the world that division and disunity aren't inevitabilities. And, like, here's the thing I've been thinking about, y'all. When, when we're all in heaven, we're going to be way more practiced at this than other people. That <laughs> One final thing, and then we're going to break into little groups of some discussion for a few minutes to, to round this thing up. Like, y'all are doing so well. Like, do you know how well you're doing? Do you know how well this is going? Like, when you're around something all the time, you kind of don't notice the change, and it feels normal. But what is happening here is, is so much more than normal. Like, churches everywhere are dying because they can't disagree well, all the time. Churches are splitting because people hold on to something other than Jesus as the most important thing. The, the, church, I, uh, the church that my mother goes to that I was raised in preached a sermon this morning, which I'm not going to get into, but left like a woman with lifelong disabilities in tears because of how fractious it was. And that's a problem. If we're leaving our most marginalized people in tears, we are failing. And I know this is hard, like I get that it's hard, and for the folks that have been here longer, we look around and there were people who are friends, they're not here, and that hurts. And, and I want you to know I see you, and I feel that. And it, and it grieves me. But at the same time, like, this place feels alive to me right now. And, and, and I'm so thankful for that. I believe that Wellspring can be a place where we love each other through disagreement. And this means that when the next great disagreement comes, and it will, there's always a thing. Every generation has its thing. The difference is that we've never been taught to disagree well. We've just been taught to split. Instead, if we have the resilience, if we have the training, if we have the practice, if we have love for our neighbor, it means we get to disagree well without separating. 
I genuinely believe that is what can make us different. I believe that Wellspring is a place where we can love each other through disagreement, that we can honor each other through our curiosities, that we can choose generosity over judgment and where we can choose relationship over conviction. I believe this reveals the heart of Jesus and there is nothing more exciting to 